0: This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Well, hello there, and you are listening to the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. We're doing a series about hell, various Bible passages about hell, at least what many people think refer to hell, as I gear up for the release of my book, What is Hell?, which will be coming out in the first week of June. If you haven't ordered that yet, please do so. The price will be going up on release date. You can pre-order it now for $2.99 on Amazon, but the book is huge. It's the biggest book I've ever written, over 350 pages, and as a result... Uh, The price will be going up on release week. So if you want to pre-order the book, it is available now on Amazon. Oh, and by the way, it is also now available on Apple iTunes for pre-order, Barnes & Noble, probably Google Play, maybe Kobo. Not really sure where else. I think the price might be a little bit higher on those platforms. I cannot remember now off the top of my head, but it is $2.99 on Amazon for a limited time. Uh, By the way, this podcast episode is brought to you by you, (laughs) Thank you so much for buying my books, listening to my podcast, telling about this podcast and my blog to other people, and also joining my discipleship group if you've done that. Listen, if you really appreciate this podcast, along with supporting me by buying my books and telling others about the podcast and so on, one of the things you could do is leave a review on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. I usually get four and five star reviews. For example, recently, William Scott reviewed Nothing But The Blood of Jesus, and he said, I'm always asking questions in reading books on Christianity, always looking and praying for answers to questions about God that seem to be so different from what we see in Jesus. I couldn't understand how a loving God could wipe out an entire city, killing every man, woman, and child in that city. How could a two-month-old baby be guilty of anything? And yet, the God of the Old Testament killed him, and he goes on, and he basically says that... These are the kinds of questions that made me feel like Jesus and God are completely opposite of each other. This book helped me get a better grasp of who God is, and the God of the Old Testament is not a moral monster. Sam on my book, The Rejustification of God, said, if you read nothing but the last chapter and the conclusion, it will be enlightening. A truly excellent exegesis of what Paul is really saying. So thank you, William and Sam for those excellent reviews that came in recently. But these reviews help because sometimes I get, um, how can I say this nicely? Just mean one-star reviews from people who have obviously not read the book or know nothing of what they're talking about. For example, I received a one-star review this week from a guy named Gadhauser who reviewed nothing but the blood of Jesus. And here is his review, one-star review. Uh, Author states that parabasis, that's a Greek word, is in Hebrews 9.15 in regards to sin, but does not state which Greek text. The word does not appear in the Greek text, the Textus Receptus. Therefore, how many others are misquoted? New King James is from the Textus Receptus, thus, book waste of time. (laughs) Well, look, I do take one-star reviews seriously, Look, if you read my books and you want to leave a one-star review because you think the book is horrible and I'm a heretic and uh, I don't know what I'm talking about, fine. But if you're going to leave a one-star review, at least make sure you know what you're talking about. I read this review by Gad Hauser and I was concerned. I thought, really? Did I did I say there was a Greek word in Hebrews 9.15 that isn't there? I went and checked. No, the Greek word is in Hebrews 9.15. And he's referring to the Textus Receptus, which is not the best Greek translation, Greek version Uh, But I thought, well, let's go check. So I went and checked the Textus Receptus. It was made by Erasmus around the days of Martin Luther, Reformation, so on. Guess what? The word is in Textus Receptus. In fact, I went and checked. The word Parabasis is in every Greek manuscript available right? It's in the Nestle Allen text, United Bible Society's text. It's in the majority text. It's even in the Texas Receptus. There are no textual variants on Hebrews 9.15. The word is in every Greek text that we have. So Gadhauser is wrong on that. And then he says the New King James is from the Texas Receptus. He's wrong on that too. New King James comes from the majority text, not from the Texas Receptus. So anyway, he says, thus the book is a waste of time. One-star review. (laughs) Uh, Well, Gadhauser, listen, um, you might want to maybe take that review down or rework it a little bit, because basically everything you wrote in your review is wrong. Sorry, but that's the way it is. So look, if you like my books, then you can overcome some of these ignorant reviews that are put up on Amazon from people who haven't read the book and don't know what they're talking about. I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enough about that. Let's dive into our study of hell and Matthew 13, 40 and 42. All right, so uh, this is the parable of the wheat and the tares, and you know the story. There's this uh, landowner, and he plants wheat, and then at night, an enemy comes along and plants some bad seed so that they both grow up together, And then the servants come and say, hey, uh, someone sowed bad seed in your field. Should we go tear them up and so that only the wheat grows? And landowner says, no, because you might tear out some of the wheat as well. Wait till the harvest and then we will separate the wheat from the tares. So the harvest comes, they separate the wheat from the tares. The tares get thrown into a furnace of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then of course the wheat is brought into the granary where it is useful for, for harvest. And so the real words we want to, the verses we want to look at are Matthew verse 13, verses 40 and 42, where Jesus says, let me pull up my Logos Bible software here. He says, uh, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. And then verse 42 says, the Son of Man will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing. Of teeth. All right. So people read this text and commentaries explain this text. And basically what they say is that Jesus is talking about hell, that people are going to, if they don't have the right works, or they turn out to be a tear at the end of the age, whatever that means, that they will be cast into this furnace of fire where they will burn and scream and suffer for all eternity and they will wail and gnash their teeth. And so this is one of the passages that people use to teach about hell. But is that really what Jesus is talking about? All right, there's lots of things we need to do to figure out what Jesus meant with this parable. The first thing is to understand why Jesus told parables in the first place and how to understand parables. Lots of people get confused about parables. They think that Jesus told parables to make his point more clear. Oftentimes, when you're reading a book or listening to a sermon, the pastor, the author will say, let me illustrate this point, and then they will tell a story. Lots of people think Jesus was doing the same thing with his parables, but the truth is he wasn't. According to various passages in the Gospels, Jesus told parables to make his point confusing. (laughs) That's shocking, right? Jesus told parables because he did not want people to understand what he was saying. Right? And uh, there's lots of reasons for that. Some of it is because it helped separate the disciples, those who truly wanted to follow and obey him, from those who were just trying to trip him up and trap him, like the religious leaders at the time. And he didn't want them to arrest him and crucify him before his he was ready. And another part of it was because it was an aspect of discipleship. Jesus wanted his disciples to come to him and say, Jesus, that parable, that story you told earlier, it really made no sense. Can you please explain it to us? This is an element of discipleship. So Jesus would say, sure, let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation about the parable. And so that means, by the way, that if you are ever confused by a parable, you're on the right track. If you read a parable of Jesus and think, I have no clue what he's talking about, guess what? That is the first step to understanding that parable. So when you're confused by a parable, I would recommend, I would encourage you, say, literally, go to Jesus in prayer. Imagine yourself sitting at his feet saying, Jesus, you told this story. I don't understand it. Can you please teach it to me? Can you please explain it to me? And I believe that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit and careful study and interaction with other people, over time, will help the meaning of that parable come clear to you. That's what I did on this parable and lots of the others that I teach. Not saying I'm 100% correct, but I am going to share with you what I have learned from Jesus so far. Now, when you do this, there are sort of three things to keep in mind when you're studying parables. First, if Jesus explains some of the symbolism of the parable— In the context, as he will do with this one, he does it with, he doesn't explain all the parables, but sometimes he does. Then that, that's a great help in your understanding. Okay, he doesn't explain most of the parables, but a few he does. And this one that we're looking at today, the Matthew 13, 24 to 40, the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus does partially explain. That helps us. Second, when you seek to understand any parable, you must, you absolutely must do your best to understand the historical and cultural and theological contexts behind the parable right what matters most in these parables is not what you and i want them to say but what jesus meant when he said them and how his audience would have understood the symbolism and the ideas and so on in the parables. So don't read your theology, your ideas, or modern events or anything like that into the parable. You need to go back to the history and the culture of that time and the symbolism that people would have heard and thought and and known when they heard Jesus talk about these things. That will help you understand the parable as well. By the way, uh, if you want to learn more about how to do this, I am creating a course right now on how to study the Bible— and uh, the first part of it is already available in my discipleship group at redeeminggod.com courses. You can join by going to redeeminggod.com slash join. I do talk about this historical, cultural, and theological contexts in the course. So on the parables, you have the first two things. If Jesus explains it, that's good. You must understand the historical, theological, con- uh, cultural contexts. Third and finally, <laughs> very important, Remember that when Jesus is telling the parables, he's often has a little humor behind the story. All right? Jesus had a sense of humor. Most people think Jesus was serious and dour all the time, you know, never smiling. That's not the truth. Um, when you read the parables, read them with a little smile in your lips, a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> looking for the the bit of humor in the story, and that will also help you understand the parable even more. All right, so with all of that in mind, let's sort of dive into this parable of Matthew 13 and see if we can, uh, these three keys will help us understand this parable of the wheat and the tares a little bit better. By the way, another thing to remember about the parables is that they are often about the kingdom of God. All right, Um, all of them are about the kingdom of God. And the thing is, is when many people think about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they hear heaven. Lots of people in the minds of many Christians, when they read about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in the Gospels, they imagine this concept of going to heaven when we die. But here, when we get into the cultural, historical background of the parables, that is not what Jesus meant. It is not what the people in his day would have heard when he talked about the kingdom of God. We know this because the words Jesus used for the kingdom of God, really it might be better translated as the reign of God, or the the rule of God, the reign of heaven. And the people in that day were very, very familiar with the rule of Rome, the reign of Rome, the reign of the Caesar, all right, in Rome. And all that came with that, with the military and Um, all of the the taxation and everything else. And uh, they were looking for God's rule and reign to come in and overthrow the Roman rule and reign and set up the Messiah on the throne in Jerusalem, basically be the opposite of everything that the Roman rule and reign represented, all right? That's how they would have understood it. So what is the kingdom of God? It's not going to heaven when you die. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God on earth, here and now, in our lives, as the opposite of the human kingdoms, such as what is seen in the the, uh, Roman empire, okay? So that's helpful to remember when you're studying the parables. Now, second, the people to whom Jesus spoke were nearly all Jewish. And obviously, therefore, they were very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. And so if you and I want to understand the parables, you and I need to be familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. Don't, don't uh, neglect Genesis through Malachi because the New Testament is so much more exciting or more focused on grace or whatever it is you think, more focused on Jesus. If you want to understand the New Testament, you sort of need to understand the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures as well, because that will help you get into the mindset of the people who are reading and writing the New Testament. All right? That will help with parables as well. Finally, it's critical to recognize that the parables of Jesus are subversive. Religiously subversive, they sought to undermine the religious leaders of his day and everything that they had twisted and perverted about what God wanted them to do. Also politically subversive, sort of calling into question the right of Caesar and the rule of Rome and what they were doing and how they were doing it and why they were doing it, and was showing people a better way, a different way, according to the rule and reign of God, the way Jesus lived. With all of this in mind, then, you come to Matthew 13, and there are seven parables in Matthew 13. Most people don't realize this, but you go through and look, there's seven parables. And all seven, then, are about this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God. And guess what? You go through and you look at the seven with sort of the keys that I just uh, laid out for you, and you quickly come to realize that not a single one of these parables is about how to go to heaven when you die. Or the opposite, it's not about a warning about going to hell when you die, okay? The seven parables of Matthew 13 are not about the afterlife at all. Every single one of these seven parables in Matthew 13 are about the nature, the character, the birth, and the growth of the kingdom of God here on earth now in our lives now as a result of what jesus christ has showed us and taught us and done for us all right it's not about going to heaven or going to hell it's about how to live in light of the kingdom of god now what it's like one example this parable of the four soils in matthew 13 1 through 8 a lot of people read this parable of the four soils and the sower goes out and scatters his seed all over By the way, there's the humor in that parable. If you've ever sown seed, then you know that this seed sower in the Parable of the Four Soils is really wasteful with this seed. He's literally throwing it all over the place, not caring where it lands. Are you really gonna throw your seed on the road? Where the birds can come and eat it, or in the thorns, where the thorns are going to choke it. No, you're going to try your hardest to only throw your seed on the good soil, but not this sower. He throws it all over, and it's representative of God and how how he throws the gospel all over the place, not really caring where it lands. It's a little bit of humor there. It's not very efficient, but God is not really—he doesn't care too much about what is efficient. Uh, it's, a, it's a little side point. The point though, of the four soils, lots of Christians, lots of people think, well, this is how to determine who's a true Christian, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. No, you go read it very, very carefully. and Jesus says nothing about going to heaven, going to hell, nothing about that. Instead about how to know who is obeying God's word, obeying the Bible, obeying what? obeying Jesus. And so it's a discipleship. And all four of the soils can apply, to both Christians and non-Christians. It's not about who's a Christian and who isn't. It's about who is following the principles and methods and, and values of the kingdom of God as seen in Jesus, the word of God and who isn't and the results that will come from that. Okay. Anyway, we're not here to talk about the parable of the four soils. Let's talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay. So by understanding this parable, uh, We understand, we're going to see what this fire is in Matthew 13 42 and also Matthew 13 50 and the identity of the ones who are burned in the fire. So, to begin with, Jesus says that this is uh, in uh, verse 24 that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field. All right, again, remember, this is not heaven. This is the kingdom of heaven. It is about God bringing his rule and reign from heaven down to earth and how his disciples can spread and uh, the rule and reign of God over the earth. All right, so it begins with this sower spreading seed. But then as the parable goes on, an enemy comes at night and he sows bad seed in the field, so a bunch of weeds or these tares spring up among the wheat. And uh, the seed that Jesus refers to, I think, goes back to the the parable of the four soils, which I just talked about. All right, just as the sower spreads all this seed, so also the sower spreading seed in his field here helps us see that. But then we have, uh, and Jesus said back there that the seed is the word of God. So I think that that application can fit here as well, that identification. The seed is the word of God in the beginning uh, of the four soils, Matthew 13. Now, the seed is still the word of God. But here we are introduced to a second type of seed, the bad seed. Well, if the good seed is the word of God and it brings about the kingdom of God, then what's the bad seed? Well, it would be the opposite. It would be maybe the teachings and values and ideas of of the devil, maybe, or the kingdom of darkness. And this just brings about this, two, this con- concept of two contrasting kingdoms. I talked about it in an earlier podcast episode, an earlier study, where the kingdom of heaven is set in contrast to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light and love set in contrast to the kingdom of hate and murder and violence. Uh, anyway, so the, seed, the seeds, both seeds, the good seed and the bad seed begin to sprout. There's a problem, though. There's great difficulty in deciding which is which between the wheat and the weeds. The servants discover, oh, some weeds have have come up. You know, the bad seed, the enemy came and sowed bad seed. And so they ask how the weeds came to how? We only sowed good seed in the field, master. Where did this bad seed come from? And here, by the way, is where a little bit of the humor enters into the parable. Is anyone who has ever sown a field or have a, a, a flower, if you have a flower garden, you got tomato plants or whatever, you ever have a little garden anywhere, uh, even if you have a lawn, <laughs> you do not need an enemy to sow bad seeds for weeds to pop up, do you? <laughs> you don't have to do anything. The weeds just show up. They come in by the wind or whatever. But the master here, which obviously represents Jesus, says, oh, an enemy came and sowed the seed. Is he wrong? No, in this case, I think an enemy did. But that just shows the foolishness of the enemy. First of all, the enemy didn't have to do anything for there to be weeds among the wheat field. The weeds would have popped up anyway. However, in this case, an enemy did go sow the seed because he wanted to ruin the crop. He wanted to ruin the harvest. Well, think about it. If you wanted to ruin someone's crop or harvest, are you literally going to go to all the work and effort of walking up and down, row by row, Sowing bad seed. I mean, where did you get the bad seed anyway? You got to go harvest the bad seed or buy it or whatever. You got all this bad seed lying around and now you're going to go do all the work of sowing it in your enemy's field. No, that is foolish. That's silly. If you want to destroy an enemy's crop or harvest or field, there's a whole lot different ways to do it. You could sow salt in the field. They do that a lot sometimes in the Old Testament. You could burn the crops, wait till it's almost ready and burn it. There's all sorts of things. Easier things you could do than sowing bad seed in your enemy's field. So here's a little bit of the humor. I imagine the audience as they're hearing this, they chuckled a little bit as Jesus talked about the foolishness, all the work and effort that this enemy goes to to try to ruin the crop. A little bit of a humorous backdrop to the rest of the story. By the way, many uh, commentators and scholars argue, say that the bad seed is probably Darnell. And this would explain why the master says, no, don't, don't try to separate the good seed from the bad seed because you'll probably pull up some of the good seed with it. Darnell uh, looks very, very much like wheat when it is growing. In fact, when it, when it first comes up, you really can't tell the difference. Maybe a really skilled eye could, uh, but you really can't tell much of a difference between the Darnell sprouts and the wheat. Uh, but you can later when it comes to harvest. Um prior to harvest, it's impossible. But once harvest comes, the wheat turns golden first, and the heavy heads of grain sort of droop over down towards the ground. The darnell, however, stays greener for longer, and so it continues to stand upright. And um, so you have to wait until harvest really to separate the wheat from the darnell. That's why the master says, no, don't even try. We're going to wait for the harvest. And then they can go along and they can literally lop off all the heads of the Darnell that's still standing upright while avoiding the wheat. And uh, then they can go along behind and harvest the golden ripe wheat. All right. And then, of course, they would burn the tares. The tares are thrown into the fire to be burned. Now, one of the reasons this is so important, you might say, what's the big deal, you know, well, one of the reasons it's so important is because uh, Darnell can be deadly to livestock and humans if consumed in large quantities. Smaller quantities, not so much. Uh, it's, it's actually at it, various times in history has been used to brew beer because it, it's sort of a uh, psychedelic. It can create dizziness uh, sometimes if baked in bread or brewed with beer, as long as the, the quantities are small enough. But too much is eaten, like with cattle, and it can kill them. Um, and, and so so, so that's why it needed to be taken care of. It can cause sickness and death. So that's the parable, and it's very confusing. I mean, we've we've sort of have some hints and ideas on what Jesus is talking about, but what is the rest of it all about? What's the fire? What's the darnell? You know, who are the servants and these harvesting harvesters and so on? Thankfully, this is one of the parables that Jesus explains. Uh, the disciples come to say, Jesus, can you explain the parable of the wheat and tares to us? And he says, sure. And he starts to explain it Verse down in verse 37. He says, the sower is the son of man. All right, we sort of already figured that out. Uh, that's Jesus. Um, and obviously, son of man is one of the favorite titles of Jesus for himself. He says, the field which the sower plants is the world. That makes sense, too. Jesus is going out into the world and he's sowing seed, the seed of the word of God, seed of the gospel. And so the good seeds that go out into the world are the sons of the kingdom. And then, uh, that's verse 38, the tares, therefore, are the opposite. They are the sons of the wicked one. And he says the enemy is the devil. We sort of knew that. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Okay, so we think, well, okay, that sort of identifies everything. But did you notice, and here is the key. Most people miss this in the parable, but here is the key to understanding this parable. Jesus goes through the list. This is that, 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 that, and that's the explanation. But if you go through and you look at all of the characters that Jesus mentioned in the parables, line them up with who he identifies, Jesus left one set of characters out. There's one set of characters Jesus does not identify. And this missing identification is the key to this parable. Who is it? Maybe you've already figured it out, especially if you have your Bibles out. It's the servants. Jesus does not say who the servants represent. Now, I read one resource who said that the servants are the reapers. Uh, But when the owner is speaking to the servants, he clearly identifies the reapers as a different group. He's speaking to the reapers, or he's speaking to the servants, and he's not saying, and you, when you go reap. He's saying, no, and when the reapers come, then they will figure it out. Okay, so the serpents, uh, not serpents, servants are different than the reapers. So who do the servants represent? Well, we can figure this out by just returning to the clues that Jesus did give us. All right? The Son of Man sowed seeds in the field, and then the servants went out and worked in the field. So, if the field is the world, and Jesus is the one who sowed seeds in the world, then the servants are the ones who tend, cultivate, and work in the fields to help the seeds grow into plants. So, who are they? Well, it's obvious. The servants are the followers of Jesus. We would call them disciples or Christians. The servants in the store are you and I. They are Christians. They are the disciples of Jesus. They are the followers of Jesus, right? They are those who go out and work in the field, who grow out to, to help grow and expand the kingdom of God, which Jesus sowed, which he planted and initiated. Now, you might say, no, wait a second. If, if Christians are the, the servants, well, I thought we were the sons of the kingdom. If, if the servants are our disciples, then who are the sons of the kingdom? aren't the sons of the kingdom disciples Christians no uh Jesus says the seed is the sons of the kingdom well that's interesting I mean if the servants are Christians then the sons of the kingdom the seed can't also be Christians Jesus isn't sowing the the, the Christians he's sowing the seed which is the sons of the kingdom so so who are the sons of the kingdom well <laughs> I know we are getting to this concept of furnace of fire. Trust me, it's a roundabout way to get there, but this is how you study the Bible. Word by word, verse by verse, as you work your way through the text, understanding each part as it comes. So, who are the sons of the kingdom? It might be better to say, what are the sons of the kingdom? You do a word study with Logos Bible Software, or something like that, on the word son, and you can discover that it doesn't always refer to people, human people. Sometimes it can be used to refer to a concept or idea, um, you know, uh, instead of a person or a family. The characters, maybe, or uh, uh, inner attributes of a person rather than the person itself. So, for example, Luke 16.8 talks about the sons of this world and the sons of light, um, sort of referring to the characteristics of both. A student or disciple of the Pharisees could be called son of the Pharisee. Well, they weren't literally the human biological sons of the Pharisees. They were the students or disciples of the Pharisees. Scripture can also speak of sons of the resurrection, sons of this age, sons of disobedience, sons of the devil, and and numerous other terms. And in most of these cases, you go and look at them, and and I have uh, verse references for these. Most of the cases, it's not referring specifically to people, but sort of the things that people do, the val- the things they value, the characteristics that identify them for who and what they are. Obviously, those are found in people, but it's not the people themselves, it's the fruit, the, the results, the characteristics of their life that a lot of these verses are referring to. So... Um, Basically, the sons of the kingdom then, and the sons of the evil one, sons of the devil, are figurative and in symbolic ways of referring to someone's character and behavior, okay? So who are the sons of the kingdom and the sons of wickedness? We need one more contextual key, and then we're there. In the context, here's where it's really important to understand this in the context of Matthew. Not just Matthew 13, but really going back to Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, the Jewish religious leaders accuse Jesus of operating according to the powers of Beelzebub, Satan, the devil. That's Matthew 12, 24. And so Jesus responds with a teaching full of symbolism and imagery. That's Matthew 12, 25 to 37. All of the symbolism and imagery that Jesus uses when he's responding to the accusation of the Pharisees, all that same symbolism and imagery shows up again in the parable of the wheat and the tares. All right, he speaks of kingdoms, uh, which are sons of the Pharisees. He speaks of kingdoms. He speaks of sons of the Pharisees. He speaks of gathering and scattering. He speaks of this age and the age to come. He speaks of the fruitfulness or lack of fruitfulness of various trees and so on. And so what this means is that The terminology and imagery and symbolism of the parable of the wheat and the tares needs to be understood in light of this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. Basically, you go back and you look at what Jesus and the religious leaders are talking about. They are accusing him of operating according to the devil, and he turns around and says, it's not me, but it's you who are operating according to the devil, who are speaking blasphemy, speaking evil from your hearts. Okay? Now, let's say you are there in the audience, and for your entire life, as a good Jewish person, you have been taught that the religious leaders are God's people. They know the scriptures. They are telling you what to do and how to do it and what is right and wrong, how to obey the scriptures. And if you follow them, your highest goal, your highest ideal is to follow the teachings of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are God's righteous people. And they come along and they say, don't you listen to this Jesus. He's a heretic. He is operating according to the power of Satan. Now, that Jesus, and you don't really know who he is. He seems to be a nice guy. But he turns around and says, no, it's not me. It's operating according to the power of the devil, but it's you. You religious leaders. Now, you like Jesus, but you like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders as well. They're not bad people, so, so too, too, you know, too much. How are you going to decide who's right? How are you going to decide who's to tr- who to trust? You've grown up to love, respect, and listen to these religious leaders. How are you going to know whether to follow the Pharisees, And Sadducees, the religious leaders, or to follow Jesus, since both are accusing, pointing the finger at the other and say, it's not me who's following Satan, but you. You could do the same thing today. If you have two Bible teachers today whom you highly respect, all right, but they disagree with each other, how are you going to know who is correct? If you've ever faced that dilemma, then you are facing the same dilemma that the disciples, these hearers, this audience faced when Jesus and the religious leaders argued with each other in Matthew 12 about who was really a son of the devil. All right? How are they going to choose? Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares to answer that dilemma. (laughs) All right? Jesus says, I know you're having trouble discerning the wheat from the tares who is really teaching the truth of God, and who isn't. So I'm going to tell you a parable that will help you figure it out. In this parable, Jesus, the Son of Man, the sower, tells his servants, the disciples, that two types of seeds have been sown, which result in two types of sons of two types of kingdoms. And Jesus says, if you want to know the difference between the two, if you want to tell who is right and who is wrong, wait until the harvest at the end of the age. That's Matthew 13, 40. <laughs> okay, so when is the end of the age? Well, if the end of the age is some future time when Jesus comes and, you know, from heaven, sets up his his throne, I mean, it's it's been 2,000 years now and that still hasn't happened. I believe it will eventually. But... If that's what Jesus is talking about, wait until I return and then I'll sort it out for you, that's not really very helpful, is it? It's not helpful for the disciples of Jesus who are hearing him. It's really not even that helpful for us. Maybe a little bit more helpful because we know what happened to Jesus with his crucifixion and resurrection, especially, and then the the early church. But for the disciples at that time who's hearing him, that's not that helpful if the end of the age is thousands of years from then. They're long gone dead, and that doesn't help answer the question about who they're supposed to listen to and follow. Okay, now, so what is this age, the end of the age, this age and the age to come that Jesus is talking about here and that Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew 12, 32? Well, Scripture basically shows us that this age that Jesus is referring to basically ended with his death and resurrection. Um, And the new age, the next age, the age to come began within one generation of that, within about 40 years or so, okay? And uh, so the death and resurrection of Jesus gave birth to this new age, and then there would be birth pains that would come along with it, all right? Uh, many travails as the old age died and the new age began. And Jesus discusses all of this, a lot of this, in Matthew 24 and 25, and we'll be looking about at that a little bit in a future podcast episode. But the point is, the resurrection of Jesus ended one age, and the age of the church began at that time. All right, And so Jesus tells his disciples, look, he says, I know it's difficult for you to decide right now who's right and who's wrong. So don't worry about it. It will become clear to you, at the harvest, at the end of this age. All right, so remember I said parables have this religiously subversive material? Here is where this parable becomes religiously subversive. The disciples of Jesus are faced with a choice. They can either follow the way of Jesus or the way of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, don't try to figure it out right now. He says, in fact, it will be dangerous for you to try to figure it out right now. If you try to figure out which of us is right, which of us is wrong, you're going to pull up some of the good teachings, some of the the wheat, along with the tares. So don't worry about it. Wait. Live in the tension of trying to decide. Wait until the harvest when the reaping angels come and separate the wheat from the chaff. When did that happen? Well, it began to happen with the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus died and then he rose again, if he was a false teacher and a heretic and a blasphemer, God would not have raised him from the dead. But God did raise Jesus from the dead, which was his initial vindication. And then he ascended and sat at the right hand of God in heaven. Okay, More vindication that God is saying, I was with him. I am with him. He is my son. What he said is correct. Follow and obey him. Okay, That is the first part of separating the wheat from the tares but ultimately what about the pharisees you know nothing bad or good happened to them well their way of teaching was ultimately and finally destroyed in ad 70 when jerusalem and the temple were burned with fire okay they rebelled the israelite people rebelled the roman empire came in and said enough with this and they destroyed the city tore it to the ground burned the temple they killed um, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of Jewish people during that time. And um, we've, we've talked about this in previous podcast episodes as well. Now, when, when I say that the Pharisees were burned with fire, am I saying, and their ways were burned with fire, am I saying that all of those religious leaders were cast into everlasting torment and punishment in hell? No. Look, read the, car- the parable carefully. Everlasting torture and torment and burning in flames is not anywhere in view. In fact, the furnace of fire imagery actually Jesus draws this from Daniel three, where Daniel's friends are thrown into the furnace of fire. That's the imagery here. They're thrown into the furnace of fire, and does that mean that Daniel, Daniel's three friends, uh, Daniel wasn't thrown into the furnace fire, but his his friends were. Does that mean that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were sent to hell where they burn and scream and suffer for all eternity? No, it's not talking about hell. In fact. Uh, The Son of Man came and walked around with them in the fire to rescue and deliver them from it. Very similar to what we're reading in Matthew 13, 43, the imagery of the righteous shining like light. Anyway, um, it it can be assumed that when Jerusalem destroyed the Roman army, okay, some Christians did die, but this is not meaning that they are going to go to hell. I imagine that many of the people who died on those horrible days were Christians, were believers, and will spend eternity with God. The point is, Jesus is saying, on that day, he's giving a prophecy, on that day, the reaping angels come, and the way of the Pharisees, the way of the Sadducees, will die. Right? And this is because Jewish Pharisaical religion of that time was dependent on, Upon Jerusalem and the temple and the sacrificial system for survival. But the way of Jesus was not. Christianity can exist, in fact, exists better without a priesthood and without sacrifices and without holy buildings or even buildings at all. All right? We do not need those things, but Pharisaical religion did need those things. And so when they were destroyed in AD 70, their way of living their way of life their way of religion was also destroyed so the chaff was burned up in the furnace of fire it's not hell it's not god sending people to hell where they burn and scream and suffer for all eternity all right it's about letting the disciples letting god decide who is correct and who is incorrect And through Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, his ascension, and then the destruction of Jerusalem, God, through his holy angels, his reaping angels, is saying, follow Jesus. His way is correct. This other way is the way of chaff. It gets burned up, destroyed, disintegrated, wastes away into nothing. All right, so, parable of the wheat and the tares. The tares are not sent to hell. All right? God, this is parable is not about how God sends wicked people to burn forever in a furnace of hell. It's instead about answering the disciples' question, how can we know who's right? And Jesus says, just let it, let the cards fall where they will, okay? We'll, it will become clear to you. Don't try to decide now. Don't try to judge between right and wrong now. That goes back to the problem that started with Adam and Eve and in the Garden of Eden, eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let God decide. Let God judge between good and evil. You just wait and let God sort it all out. And that's exactly what happened uh, in Jerusalem with the destruction of the city and the temple in AD 70. Now, people might say, yeah, but Jeremy, it says weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is clearly hell. <laughs> they will weep and gnash their teeth. Um, well, look, Um, we, We did talk about this previously in a podcast episode where we talked about the outer darkness. You can go and listen to that. The phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth occurs six times in Matthew, one time in Luke, nowhere else in the New Testament. In fact, nowhere else in other Greek literature either. And every single use of weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew, all six all right, in Matthew and the one in Luke, are in reference to people who are part of the family of God. That is, those who belong to God. In Matthew 8 12, it refers to those who are sons of the kingdom, who will weep and gnash their teeth. In Matthew 13 42, it refers to those who are gathered out of God's kingdom, indicating they're they're in it to begin with. All right, in Matthew 13 50, the images of two types of people caught in the same net, and the net is the kingdom of God. One type is pulled out and experiences this weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew twenty two thirteen, 13, it describes a man who is actually at the wedding banquet, which is only for people who are part of the kingdom of God, uh, who are servants, belong to the king. In Matthew uh, 24, 51 and Matthew 25, 30, it's used in connection to the experience of a servant who did a poor job serving his master. So the person is a servant. He is serving his master or trying to. All right? None of the references are references to people who are not part of the kingdom of God, who are not part of the family of God. Weeping and gnashing of Teeth does not refer to the tortured experience of unregenerate people in everlasting flames of eternal hell. It instead refers, in every case, to the experience of some people who belong to God and should have known what he expected of them and how they are to live, but they didn't. And so they experience profound shame and regret in response, either in this life or at the judgment seat of Christ. And you can imagine that is what happened when Jerusalem fell. I told you there were likely many, many, many Christians in Jerusalem. And when Rome came and destroyed the city. Many of them were killed. Many of them fled. There was profound shame, deep regret, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Right, wailing, mourning at what had happened to them, their families, their friends, their city, the temple. Weeping and gnashing of teeth has nothing whatsoever to do with going to hell in any place it's used. Instead, it is a graphic and descriptive Middle Eastern way of expressing profound regret and shame there's a great book by robert wilkin and zane hodges called the outer darkness they talk about this i highly recommend you get it uh fudge also talks about this a little bit in his book the fire that consumes but bottom line here okay this is the parable of the wheaton terrors it's not about hell all right uh, when we read about terrors being cast into the furnace of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is not an image of God sending unbelievers to scream and suffer and burn forever in, in eternal suffering. All right, Jesus is saying, look, I know you're having trouble discerning which of us is right, me versus the Pharisees. So just wait, hold on, all things will be made clear, the good and the, and the bad teaching will be made evident, by what happens to me and my followers and what happens to the Pharisees and their followers. And we know what happened. Jesus, yes, he was crucified, but then he rose again. He ascended. The church spread over the face of the earth. Meanwhile, Pharisaical religion died and burned away when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Okay? By the way, the Jewish historian... Flavius Josephus, in his History of the Destruction of Jerusalem, writes that in the time, right before the Roman military attacked and burned the city in the temple, chariots and soldiers were seen to be running around in the clouds above Jerusalem, and voices from heaven were heard calling for the removal of the city. Honestly, it sounds like science fiction to me. I do not know if he is elaborating on this or not, but it's what he writes. In fact, let me just read the quote. He says, besides these, a few days after the feast, on the one and twentieth day of the month of Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those who saw it and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. So so Josephus says, I'm not sure I believe it, but lots of people saw it, and they all claim it's true. Eyewitnesses' accounts here. He says, For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were see, seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of cities. Moreover, at that feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was, to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that. In the first place, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, Let us remove hence. This is almost identical to what Jesus describes in the parable of the wheat and the tares. The reaping angels will come and remove the city. Cut them off, lop them off, and the city is burned like the chaff. All right? Bottom line is... The parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 24-30 is not about God sending sinners to hell to burn in flames for all eternity. It is instead a, a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish religion as practiced at that day and how the disciples shouldn't try to figure out which is right, which is wrong. Jesus says, just let, let, let things grow And God, through his angels, will make it very clear to you. All right? And that is exactly what happened in AD 70. So that's the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's not about hell. It's a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. Hope it all makes sense. It was a lot to cover. Looks like we went well over 50 minutes. 50 minutes. So, it is longer than normal, but it was so much to cover so that I could explain this well for you. Hope that all made sense. So, look, if you have questions or comments about this, then you can go to uh, redeeminggod.com, Matthew 13, 40 to 42, or just search that for Google. Matthew 13, 40 to 42, redeeminggod.com on Google, and it'll pull it up. And you can leave a comment there, question there, and I will try to respond to it as I am able. Uh, Almost a better way, though, would be to join my online discipleship group. They get priority to emails and comment responses on my blog and in our private Facebook group. That would be the best way to ask me questions about this as well. Okay? So, um, but uh, either way, look, if you've read this book, uh, What is Hell? Because maybe you're listening to this and it's out, or some of my other books, and you want to support me, support the show, support the podcast. One way you can do that is by telling other people about my books, my podcast, my online discipleship group, and something free and easy, quick for you is to just go leave a review, either of the podcast or some of my books. That's a great encouragement to me. And it also helps override some of those silly one-star reviews that people leave when they don't know what they're talking about, (laughs) as I talked about earlier in the show. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Next week, we are going to be moving into Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9 and seeing that it also is not teaching about God sending people to scream and suffer forever in hell. Make sure you join us then. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.